Ofari Hutchinson's show, 9 a.m. to 11, Saturday mornings on KPFK. And this is KPFK. 90.7 FM. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. All right. Hi, this is Leela Downs. You're listening to KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, 98.7 FM Santa Barbara, globally on kpfk.org. En una noche de luna, Naila lloraba ante mí. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. The 80th anniversary of the Zoot Suit Riots is upon Los Angeles. L.A. County Supervisor Hilda Solis, in her motion to the Board of Supervisors, denounces the devastation of the Zoot Suit Riots to recognize this as a dark chapter in Los Angeles County's history and recommit to fighting against racial discrimination. This is KPFK Rebel Alliance News. Good evening. I'm Angela Birdsong, and here are today's headlines. Ranked choice voting and what it is. Can AI replace us? News highlights from outside the NATO-controlled media and an important event in Brazil this past week. Commentary by Sakivu Hutchison on creating safe spaces for, for black LGBTQ plus youth and also Mumia Abu-Jamal as he addresses the United Nations and the community calendar. All this and more coming up. Ethnic Media Services brings Chris Deedy, Senior Research Fellow, Harvard Graduate School of Education and Associate Director of Research and the National AI Institute for Adult Learning and Online Education, discusses the factors that lead to bias in artificial intelligence and, and explains how AI can be an important partner in work and why human intelligence is irreplaceable. There are cancer specialists, oncologists now, who have AI partners. The AI can do something that no cancer specialist can do. It can scan every morning 1,500 medical journals online and see if there's something new about the treatment of a particular patient. It can scan medical records worldwide of similar patients undergoing a variety of treatments and get advice about what's working and what's not working. But you would never want the AI making the decisions because the doctor knows things the AI doesn't know. It knows The doctor knows about pain and death. The doctor understands that some people want quality of life and other people want quantity of life. It understands that cultures have different points of view about death, that different spiritual traditions have different points of view about death, that death affects a family as well as an individual, and so on and so on. AI does not understand any of those things. I'll just say one more quick thing about um, bias. Um, I've, I've co-authored articles and chapters about at least five sources of bias that can occur in AI systems. You can have a biased data set, you can have a biased algorithm, you can have biased people interpreting the outcomes and so on. And with work, one can eliminate uh, or greatly reduce those five kinds of bias, and that's something really important to do. But at the end of the day, AI is, is like a parrot, but it's also like a mirror. It's a mirror that we hold up to the internet and it reflects back what it sees about our society. And a biased society will always produce a biased image in the mirror. So we have to not only fix AI, we have to fix ourselves. Ranked choice voting is what it is and how does it work? Dan McQuarrie reports. 
So yeah, my name is Paul Copley. I'm with the California Ranked Choice Voting Coalition, and we're a statewide nonprofit that's working to get RCV implemented on the city, county, and statewide level in the next couple years. We are uh, gathering volunteers around the state and preparing to run ballot initiatives in some of the biggest cities in the state in anticipation of running a statewide ballot measure in the next uh, four to six years. I've actually passed a couple of resolutions at the state party level in favor of RCV. So uh, one of the things I found, though, that resolutions don't do a hell of a lot. So Right. Yeah, I mean, the state party can pass a resolution, and that shows uh, a certain level of support, but it doesn't, it doesn't carry any legal action with it. So um, we have tried to be very smart and very strategic. We're not... We're an entirely volunteer organization. Uh, all of our money comes from our volunteers, so we're very careful about how we spend it. Uh, we're not going out and gathering signatures uh, and doing ballot initiatives in places where we don't think that this can pass. If the city council or the powers that be come out against it, uh, even a very well-funded signature gathering effort can very easily fail. So we're identifying cities around the state where the council is already friendly or neutral, and we think we can get them on on board with RCV uh, to pick for our targets. And in doing so, we're trying to get a city in all of the major media markets across California to adopt RCV so that even if it's not being used in your city, it's being used in an area where you've been exposed to it, you've seen the voters choose it, and you've seen it work. That way, when we put a ballot measure in front of voters statewide, sometimes in 2026 or 2028, they know what we're asking them to vote on, and they know that it works. Can you explain for people who don't have any idea what RCV is, what it is? Absolutely. So ranked choice voting is just a really simple upgrade to the way we run our elections. Currently, you go into the booth and you're asked to vote for only one candidate. In a ranked choice model, you would go in and you would be asked to vote for multiple candidates in order of preference. So your first candidate would be the candidate that you absolutely love, somebody that you might go out and knock on doors for. Your second choice candidate would be somebody that you'd be happy with if they won. Your third choice is somebody who doesn't defend you and so on and so forth all the way down the ballot. And then the candidate that you just absolutely could never see yourself voting for, you leave off. And that way, you've shown your preference on the ballot, and all of those ballots go into what's called an instant runoff election, where they tabulate all the first choices, and if nobody gets a majority, and I mean a full 50% plus one majority, then what happens is the lowest performing candidate is eliminated. Everybody who selected that candidate gets to default to their next choice, and they recount the ballots again. And they keep doing this until one of the candidates not only gets the most votes, but actually passes that 50% plus one threshold. Okay. Uh, from what I understand, one of the drawbacks that people who are in favor of it uh, have uh, found is that uh, every time you do a recount and resetting the, the numbers, there's no monitoring of it. Is there a process in the uh, proposed uh, legislation that would allow for that mo monitoring of uh, the changing of the guard, so to speak? Yeah, so we're not we're not actively promoting any one piece of legislation. Oh. Each county that implements ranked choice voting is going to be responsible to come up with the legislation that works for them. But I will say that all of this is very transparent. So all of the tabulation that's done by the voting machines, you are able to go back through and verify that you're able to run uh, additional tabulations to make sure that none of no problems were detected. And sometimes problems are detected. We're one of the groups that's most likely to detect a problem. Uh, a lot of our volunteers were the first people to detect the errors in the recent tabulation that happened up in Alameda County, and we're able to correct it. So there, there's nothing that's done behind uh, closed doors that can't be seen and can't be checked out. Transparency is really important to us and the model that we're putting forward. So we make sure that anywhere that there's an RCV bill being considered, that uh, you know that kind of oversight and transparency is built in so that third parties can go in and evaluate the results of that election and make sure that it was fair and everything was done in the light. I know it's, there's been successful implementation of it in various state uh, elections, uh, but mostly at the municipal level, right? So in California, it's only been done at the municipal level. There's a number of cities up in the Bay Area that use it. 
very recently Redondo Beach just elected to start using it in their next electoral cycle. There's a city out in the Inland Empire, Palm Desert, that uses it, and the small town of Ojai just uh, voted to start using it. So here in California, it's used on the municipal level, but other places in the country, such as Alaska, Maine, and Vermont, they use it statewide. And um, our neighbors right next door in Nevada just voted to start using it in statewide elections. They will have to reaffirm that vote in 2024, but if they do, it will be used for all statewide elections in 2026. And of course, there are a number of countries around the world where this is their de facto model for running elections and successfully. Such as? Such as Australia. I believe they use it in Scotland. Scotland and in Ireland, they have actually a full proportional representation system that uses ranked choice voting, and it's produced a really broad, diverse number of political parties and representation that have the ability to coalesce into coalitions around single issues as opposed to just having party line votes on vote after vote after vote. So it's, it's really quite effective in building consensus. Uh, I've seen that uh, women of color have really uh, had more numbers elected because of our RCV. Yeah. Why is that? Well, RCV is fantastic for women and people of color because um, there's sort of a, there's an invisible barrier that keeps them out of elections. It's made up of a couple of things. There's a lot of nastiness in politics that tends to be um, especially brutal on female candidates. Uh, and it keeps them from running. It keeps them from winning because people are, you know, are maybe hesitant to vote for them because they don't necessarily think they can win. In an RCV model, where you're actually encouraged to vote for the candidate you want, irregardless of whether or not you think they'll win, what we see is that there's actually a tremendous amount of support for women and candidates of color. And when people are empowered to go out and vote for those people, they do very well at the poll. Um, another thing is it gives you the ability to eliminate primaries or, or runoff elections if you use a clean model of RCV. And that reduces costs and campaign time for a lot of people. So if you're somebody from a, a lesser funded campaign, or if you're somebody who doesn't have nine months to put into a campaign, in an RCV election, it, it's still an option for you to run for office, even if you don't have a huge war chest of money or nine months to spend on campaigning. And these kind of factors uh, really benefit uh, female candidates and candidates of color because um, traditional models of uh, the traditional funding sources and the traditional models of campaigning heavily favor male candidates and white candidates. Have there been cases where the um, municipality or whoever that uh, has voted it in and tried it out backed away from it? Yeah, definitely. There have been places where it has been um, voted in and then they used it once a group of people didn't like it, so they moved to very quickly have it repealed. And I, the name of it is escaping me. I want to say maybe it was somewhere in Minnesota or in the Great Lakes area. And they have since voted to reinstate it. Not everybody is thrilled about this because while it means better results for some people, it's, it's inevitably going to mean uh, worse results for people who have disproportionate amounts of power. The traditional block. Yeah. yeah, so that's something that you do have to work against. Um, in, in areas where certain groups are overrepresented, you know, where one political party just has a stranglehold, or one one uh, you know group is, is dominating a city council or something like that, a ranked choice model is going to naturally open the door for other people, and it's going to empower voters to vote for different types of candidates. So there will be resistance to it, especially among groups that have disproportionate amounts of power. And that's just something that we have to work against. Gotcha. Do you have a, a target right now that you're aiming for as far, as far as a particular city or county? Or yeah, so our strategy right now is to try and get RCV implemented in all of California's major media markets, which would be you know, San Diego, Southern California, uh, the Central Coast, Central Valley, Bay Area, and Northern California, which would include Sacramento. And uh, it's already widely used in the Bay Area, of course. But our goal is to get three major cities in 2024, and then in 2026 do either two or three more major cities or a full statewide ballot initiative. If the ballot initiative doesn't come in 26, it'll come in 28. We are very intentionally 
trying to be as strategic as possible so as not to waste the time or money of any of the people that are supporting this effort. So we only put our time in where we think we've got a good chance of winning and we know the path we need to take to win. Excellent. Thanks so much. I've been talking to Paul Copley of Ranked Choice Voting Group. Stay tuned because we'll be seeing some of this on the ballot soon. Yes, Paul. And if you'd like to get involved with the effort to bring ranked choice voting to California, please visit our website, www.calrcv.org. You can find sign-up sheets there. You can uh, sign up for our newsletter, and you can find our all our socials and every way to get involved with this movement. Great. Thank you so much. This is Dan for Working Voices Radio and Rebel Alliance News. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. KBFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Getting help to buy. Now for an international report an important event in Brazil that may advance the rising global multipolarity this past week. Don DeBar has more. A summit in Brazil holds promise for the future of Latin America and the Caribbean. For more on that, we go to Stephen Sefton in Esteli, Nicaragua, and Camila Escalante in Sao Paulo, Brazil. Stephen, Camila, it's great to have you here. Uh, and I really wanted to talk with you guys about this uh, summit of sorts that uh, took place in Brazil. Some very interesting stuff. Yeah, and uh, it, it was a really very important event, Don, um, because... It's part of what, in my opinion, it's part of a, a, a global realignment of uh, nations trying to come to terms with the developing uh, realities as a result of China and Russia's uh, in decision to, to go ahead and full, to go full speed ahead by from, from what it looks like with their um, efforts to uh, put in place global institutions that are not controlled and dominated by the United States and its allies. And, and I see uh, Lula's decision, it was uh, Lula da Silva, the president of Brazil's decision to invite the um, uh, leaders of uh, South America. It's a, uh, it was a, a kind of informal summit of South American uh, leaders. And I see uh, that invitation and the event itself very much as part of this realignment of countries and efforts to define their position in the emerging new world order, if you can put it that way. And also in, in, in regional terms, it was very, very important because it marked an absolutely triumphant uh, return to uh, the international scene by Venezuela and Venezuela's president, uh, Nicolas Maduro. There's so much to talk about in relation to that. I wonder what um, Camilla, what uh, Camilla sees as the most important points. I don't know. Tell us. Well, yeah. So President Lula da Silva, of course, invited uh, 12 countries, all the countries of South America, 11 of which were presidents. And Lula shares the view with President Nicolas Maduro that we have to get beyond the um, ideologization, he says in Spanish, of uh, international relations and relations between countries of South America. He sees this integration of South America as absolutely crucial, a crucial first step towards you know, the ultimate goal of the integration of Latin America and the Caribbean. These are the most populous countries. We're talking about a combined GDP of $4 trillion, 450 million people is the population. So all, we're heading towards half a billion people. And Lula says that he attributes, you know, the first decade of UNASUR to, um, you know, a, a greater capacity and an effective forum for resolving disputes between countries. He says that they were able to make um, and implement cooperation initiatives in the areas of public health, of infrastructure and defense. And he says that should be possible now. And President Nicolas Maduro agrees. It seems like President Petro agrees as well. 
Of course, uh, Luis Arce in Bolivia also agrees. Two of the people who actually don't agree and who stood out and they they had words for both Lula and for uh, President Maduro were Gabriel Boric and uh, Luis Lacaya Poe, the far-right president of Uruguay. So they had their own views on things. They, of course, are, you know, uh, falling for the bait uh, put forth by the United States, which is seeking disunity, which has tried everything possible to try to disunite or disrupt uh, this project, the advancement of this project of integration of Latin America. So it seems, um, you know, it's really... It's going to be very interesting to see what happens here forward because, unfortunately, we're hearing some voices now in the media criticizing, and in politics as well, criticizing Lula's positions um, and some of his statements saying, on the one hand, he's avoiding uh, Zelensky. And, you know, a lot of this comes down to, you know, what people, uh, the direction the United States sees for Brazil for Latin America in terms of supporting NATO and their conflict. And he's avoiding Zelensky. He's not going along with the U.S. line on a number of things. And he's once again reestablishing very quickly uh, those full diplomatic and political and cultural, et cetera, relations with Venezuela. So that's totally illegal as far as Washington's concerned. And Jake Sullivan will probably pick up the phone soon and call Celso Amorin or his foreign minister, Mauro Vieira, and protest it. Can I just mention, can I just uh, yep. cut in there? Um, it, I think it may be helpful for our listeners to explain that UNISUR was set up back in 2008 or 2009, the Union of South American Nations. And it fell apart when, after 2015, 2016, when right-wing governments withdrew from the organization, most importantly under Jair Bolsonaro. So it's really important, as um, Camilla has stated, that uh, they, they, they've managed to hold this conference with all, all those presidents participating and explicitly talking about reinstating UNISUR. And Gustavo Petro um, made an explicit commitment that he would rejoin UNISUR for, uh, for, uh, as president of Colombia. So that's tremendously important. What's and, with Forage? Uh, I mean, he's not even pretending that he's a lefty now? Well, and they, 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 and unless I correct me if I'm wrong, Camilla, but I'm, I'm pretty sure that despite their uh, disparaging remarks, um, both the president of Uruguay and Boric, the president of Brazil, they, 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 they of agreed, Chile, of Chile, they, oh, sorry, of, of Chile, um, they agreed to um, uh, stay part of this new process that Lola has put back on track of. of uh, of UNISOR and regional integration for South America. Um, and they apparently they've agreed to uh, participate in the contact group that uh, it will result from the final agreement of the meeting. Is that correct? I believe that's correct. But I mean, he has come out and said, you know, on the one hand, we have President Nicolas Maduro, who throughout this time said that we need to maintain diplomatic relations with as, ma as many countries as possible, healthy, strong relations. Everyone should be able to trade. Everyone should be able to buy and sell products freely um, and, and not have to be uh, living under sanctions, not have to be penalized simply because one country doesn't like the president of another country, or simply because they don't like the ideology or the economic model of that country. And precisely right. what Lakaya Poe and what Boric are sort of advocating for is, you know, this continued hostility. And really what the hostility is on the part of the United States, Canada, and Europe is the continued, uh, you know, the maintenance of those unilateral course of measures, those illegal sanctions, which are harming millions, tens of millions of Venezuelans and hundreds of millions of people in other sanctioned countries. That's what they need to be advocating against. And this is a space that Lula has created in which they should have, you know, every single person should have called for the categorical lifting of those sanctions on all South American countries. And really, it's only in this context, Venezuela. They seem to not be wanting to go in that direction. That would be the first step if they're talking about, um, you know, creating uh, a common trade area and, you know, all sorts of benefits, including uh, some sort of common currency and other yeah. things they're hinting at. They need to be talking about the way in which one of these countries, a major important country, is being is still under assault by those sanctions. Yeah, it may, it may be worth pointing out that Chile has, in fact, agreed to open up diplomatic relations that had been cut. And I, I think they took that decision over the last couple of weeks. Um, 
Yeah, and, and I, I, I think you're right about the the the. I, my my feeling, Camilla and Don, is that the the economic imperative is is steadily going to override the ideological. Yeah. Um, the yes. ideological uh, kind of remains of the of, of the recent resurgence of the right wing across the region, and it's very important that they do so because. Um, the Europeans, I, obviously, we we know that the United States is married to the Monroe Doctrine, but the Europeans just recently announced a very strong initiative whereby they're going to go on a kind of economic offensive in Latin America. And Ursula van der Leyen, the president of the European Union, is going to visit um, Mexico, Chile, Argentina and Brazil in June as part of that offensive leading up to uh, a summit between the 27 EU nations and the all the heads of state uh, uh, and government of the community of Latin American and Caribbean states that hasn't happened for eight years. The last one was in 2015. Right. So it's really it's really important that um, Lula called this uh, summit in preparation for what is likely to be uh, a very complex uh, 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 um, and tricky attack from the, the European Union trying to re recover lost ground in the region. Uh, we will be watching that as it develops, of course. Stephen, Camilla, thank you so much for your time. Look forward to speaking with you again next week. You're welcome. So for KPFK, I'm Don DeBar. KPFK Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. Getting help to buy groceries is now simpler than ever with CalFresh. You can apply for CalFresh online, over the phone, or turn in your application at a DPSS office. Then, use your EBT card at stores or order your groceries online and eat healthy. Click, cook, CalFresh. KPFK Rebel Alliance News. I'm Angela Birdsong. That was Birdland performed by the Manhattan Transfer. The Los Angeles Philharmonic announces in a recent press release that the Manhattan Transfer, the final farewell concert at Walt Disney Concert Hall, would take place on Friday, December 15th, 2023 at 8 p.m. in their last concert ever. The legendary quartet celebrates 50 years of their distinctive and elective sound. In their five-decade career, the Manhattan Transfer has won 11 Grammys, collaborated with everyone from Phil Collins to Bette Midler, and revolutionized the way people think about the possibilities of the human voice. Their inductions into the East Coast Music Hall of Fame and the Vocal Music Hall of Fame commemorate this incredible history. Apple weather forecast for this weekend in North Hollywood at KPFK 90.7 FM shows 76 degrees on Saturday and Sunday. And at our sister stations in Southern California, high 60s in San Diego and Santa Barbara. High 60s in, no, actually high 90s, mid to high 90s in Ridgecrest, China Lake. Yeah, that's my kind of weather out there, nice and hot. Okay, here is today's international news from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere with Polina Vasiliev. For KPFK's Rebel Alliance News, here are today's international highlights from sources outside of the NATO-controlled media sphere. Divisions grow in the European Union over the bloc's relentless military support for Ukraine, EU member Hungary favors peace negotiations and that stance is creating tensions. Jerome Hughes in Brussels has the details. 
EU leaders accuse the Hungarian government of casting democratic values aside with respect to judicial reforms and press freedom. However, analysts say their real issue is that Budapest is not towing the line with respect to the war in Ukraine. EU affairs ministers met on Tuesday to debate so-called EU values in Hungary. On her way into the meeting, Hungarian Justice Minister Judith Varga slated the European Parliament for criticising her government. Minister Varga says that the European Parliament does not respect EU values, does not respect democracy in Hungary, does not respect rule of law. What do you think? The European Parliament has full democratic legitimacy uh, to adopt the resolutions in case they see the political need to do so. So that's the only comment I have. The EU has so far spent 10 billion euro on weapons for Ukraine. EU nation Hungary is against the policy and that seriously irks Brussels and Washington. There is no chance to win this war. So therefore, what we should do far more energy invest into to convince everybody that the only solution is ceasefire. Experts say Prime Minister Orban is correct to suggest the EU is concentrating too much on propelling the Ukraine war. He definitely has a point because here in Brussels you hear people saying, OK, it's always about Ukraine. It's Ukraine this, Ukraine that. But we should not forget the Palestinians in Gaza. We should not forget the Syrians. We should not forget the Sudanese. It's clear the Hungarian government is a major thorn in the side of the EU project at present. However, Eurosceptic parties in other member states are on course to make significant gains in forthcoming elections, helped on by the cost of living crisis. Therefore, the problems might only be starting for the establishment here. Jerome Hughes, Press TV at the EU Affairs Minister's meeting, Brussels. Turkey has been blocking Sweden's attempt to join the NATO alliance for months. Now following the re-election of Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, Europe and Washington need to consider a new strategy to get the nod from Ankara for Sweden's accession to the Western alliance. Robert Carter in Stockholm has more. Will Sweden ever succeed in its bid to join the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, otherwise known as NATO? That is the question many are wondering after a year of back and forth on the contentious issue. The US and other NATO members have lobbied hard for a fast-tracked introduction of several Scandinavian countries in a move that deeply angered Russia. Finland's bid was successful. Sweden's, on the other hand, ran into serious problems. Sweden and Finland both applied to join NATO last year, abandoning their traditional policies of neutrality following the start of the Ukraine conflict. Now, in order to successfully join NATO, all of its current members must support the bid. Turkey and also Hungary have yet to support Sweden's application to join the military alliance. Turkey ratified Finland's accession in late March, but has blocked Sweden's over complaints Stockholm harbors members of groups Ankara considers terrorists. Relations between the two worsened in January, when Quran burnings outside Turkey's embassy in Sweden sparked global Muslim protests. European onlookers hoped that the recent Turkish elections might open the door to NATO if Erdogan loses. Instead, he remains in power. U.S. President Joe Biden is now forced to find an alternative strategy, possibly by enticing Ankara with promises of fighter jet sales. I spoke to Erdogan oh, and yes. congratulated Erdogan. And uh, he, uh, he still wants to work on something on the F-15s. I told him we wanted to deal with Sweden so I get that done. And uh, so we'll be back in touch with one another. But uh, it was basically a congratulatory call. Critics of NATO believe any move to expand the bloc is a mistake, casting doubt on NATO's true ambitions. I was looking up some polls earlier and, and throughout the, the last centuries, the Swedes were very opposed to NATO membership. They wanted to maintain um, that, that independence, but it's all been shifted on its head thanks to very smart propaganda. Just looking back on history... In 1999, they decided to become an offensive organisation with the bombing of Yugoslavia. They have been involved in numerous other conflicts since. 
um, especially in Afghanistan and also Libya. They are not a defensive alliance. NATO's Secretary-General has expressed high hopes Sweden will indeed join the bloc. Swedish Foreign Minister said Monday he hoped to meet with his Turkish counterpart soon to discuss relations. However, Moscow has warned that the continued expansion of NATO could lead to further retaliatory measures, raising fears of further fighting in Europe. Beijing's Ministry of Defense has given the Pentagon the cold shoulder, denying a request to hold a private meeting on the sidelines of an upcoming security forum in Singapore. RT's Donald Quarter with the details. Here's a statement given by the U.S. Defense Department to the Wall Street Journal. Overnight, the PRC informed the U.S. that they have declined our early May invitation for Secretary Austin to meet with PRC Minister of National Defense Li Shang-Fu in Singapore this week. The department believes strongly in the importance of maintaining open lines of military-to-military communication between Washington and Beijing to ensure that competition does not veer into conflict. A little background on Beijing's decision. The Biden administration last week upheld sanctions on the Chinese defense minister himself, Li Shangfu. Donald Trump had initially put those in place for the official's role in China purchasing Russian missiles and jets back in 2018. Now, the rejection comes at a time when U.S. lawmakers have published a controversial list of actions to be taken to prepare Taiwan for so-called peace by arming the nation. A U.S. congressional committee focused on the Chinese Communist Party's release of 10 recommendations aimed to preserve peace and stability in the Taiwan Strait. The number one is the manufacture and supply of more long-range missiles to the Indo-Pacific region. And this comes as U.S. Stinger missiles have also arrived in Taiwan as part of an aid package promised by Washington. Chinese Foreign Ministry spokesperson Mao Ning condemned the move, saying it's extremely wrong and dangerous. The U.S. provision of weapons to Taiwan gravely violates the three China-U.S. joint communiques, especially the August 17 communique. It interferes in China's internal affairs, harms China's sovereignty and security interests, and undermines peace and stability across the strait. This is extremely wrong and dangerous. China strongly deplores and firmly rejects this and has made serious demarches to the U.S. We discussed the situation with Einar Tangen, a senior fellow at the Taihe Institute think tank, who agrees that Washington is playing a dangerous game. This is a political posturing. Um, The Biden administration knew that they needed to remove uh, that sanction, uh, that the sanction was actually meaningless. There was no reason to do that other than they did not want the meeting to occur. So it's clearly posturing. It's trying to put this case forward that the U.S. is somehow being reasonable and that it's China being unreasonable when it's the exact reverse. Uh, This is a common play uh, by the U.S. currently to accuse others of what they're doing themselves. You know, at this at this juncture, you know, there's not much China can do if they don't feel that there's any point to these uh, meetings or that the U.S. isn't being sincere. That, But that is a problem. You have two nuclear nations uh, at loggerheads. And, um, you know, this is adding to the uncertainty in the world. So at at this juncture, I wish the White House was going forward with some effort uh, instead of trying to cause more uncertainty to uh, create more trust. You know, there's this effort to use proxies and uh, obviously enticing a war or basically knowing that going into Ukraine would cause uh, Russia to react. Um, They know the same thing with Taiwan. If they go into Taiwan, uh, obviously China will react. So this is the real danger. How far do they want to go? And that's all in today's international highlights from non-NATO media. For KPFK, I'm Polina Vasiliev. KPFK, Rebel Alliance News, Los Angeles. All right, Richard Platkin, a retired Los Angeles city planner who writes about local planning issues for City Watch LA, has this written commentary to share about why does Los Angeles fails to monitor its adopted plans. Platkin states the film La La Land has a great opening shot of drivers dancing on cars trapped in a freeway traffic jam while Hollywood's creativity was on full display day-to-day reality is another story. When stuck in traffic, Angelinos silently suffer 
listen to radios and podcasts, or catch up with friends on their cell phones. Dancing on gridlock cars only happens in movies, Pat Platkin says. But there is no reason why the declining quality of life in Los Angeles should be camouflaged by imaginative movie scenes and municipal plans and programs that are never monitored. If the city's plans were monitored, they would reveal the bad news that the officials and their booster buddies try to hide. Day-to-day life in Los Angeles is getting tougher. This is why those looking for accurate municipal data that documents these trends require divine intervention to find a city hall employee willing to explain why the city's plans have failed and why life in Los Angeles has become so hard. Platkin further comments that plan monitoring is not only common sense, but it should be part of every planning process. Until 2019, charter cities like Los Angeles were exempt from the California General Plan Guidelines annual reporting requirement, but this is but this rule now applies to them. Los Angeles now submits a general plan annual report to the governor's Office of Research and Planning. Unfortunately, L.A.'s report is only a collection of adopted plans and implementation ordinances. No reader knows if L.A.'s adopted plans have achieved their goals. In other words, Platkin says Los Angeles is still flying blind and the quality of life for most of its residents continues its long and poorly measured downward trajectory. Nevertheless, L.A.'s general plan also contains clear but totally ignored monitoring requirements. The big question is why L.A. has refused to monitor its plans despite the state and local requirements. Since the City Hall officials have avoided this question, these are Platkin's explanations. He says City Hall officials are so wary of monitoring results that they have ignored these monitoring requirements. They also know that many businesses have failed and that homeless counts have steadily increased despite stopgap programs like inside safe and LAPD harassment of homeless encampments. Platkin also says city officials know that climate change has arrived. They also realize that programs that claim to reduce greenhouse gas emissions offer a convenient justification for new high-density apartments. The result of this deliberately unmonitored pseudo-climate-friendly land-use approach is an increase in driving and reduced supply of low-priced apartments. Platkin concludes the inexcusable results are there for all to see. Life for most Angelinos is getting hard with or without City Hall monitoring data that documents these disturbing trends. Richard Platkin is a board member of United Neighbors for Los Angeles. Here is a commentary by Mumia Abu-Jamal about what does justice look as Abu-Jamal speaks of his own court court case. Greetings to the UN delegation. Initially, I wish to thank the members of the working group of experts on people of African descent who prepared and filed an amicus brief in my case. And of course, the delegation of jurists, lawyers, and scholars from the UN International Independent Expert Mechanism to advance racial justice and equality in law enforcement. Now visiting the United States. I specifically want to greet the delegation members, Justice Yvonne Mukguru, formerly of the South African Constitutional Court, the Lesotho Appeals Court, and Supreme Court of Namibia, Dr. Tracy L. Kisi of the National Initiative for Building Community Trust and Just, a project of the DOJ, and human rights law professor Juan E. Mendez, also an expert on torture. Welcome. I begin this brief message with a simple question. What does justice look like? A simple answer might be found etched in stone in the edifice of the U.S. Supreme Court 
equal justice under law, or even simpler, the idea that all people are treated equally before the law. Do you know what Judge Albert Sabo thought of justice? You won't have to wonder long. In open court, in a PCRA hearing in 1996, he said, justice is just an emotional feeling. It shouldn't surprise us, coming from a judge who was a life member of the FOP. If justice is treating all people equally, the report of the group Amnesty International which reviewed this case, found many instances where state courts ignored their own precedent to deny relief in my case. If the system treats someone unequally, what do we call that? Indeed, one of the judges in my federal appeal wrote, I see no reason why this court should not afford Abu Jamal the courtesy of our precedents, but deny me their precedents they did. What do you call that? I've been reading scholars and philosophers lately. They call this a state of exception. That means that some laws apply to almost all except for those for whom it doesn't. These are, well, exceptions. Everyone has the right to a fair trial, except some. Everyone has the right to an impartial jury, except some. Everyone has the right to due process, except some. My brothers and sisters call it the mumia exception. My case exists in a state of exception. Indeed, when the United States ignored the Constitution after Reconstruction for 100 years for black people, this was a mass state of exception. And after a federal judge called the death penalty unconstitutional in my case, I spent 10 years on death row on an unconstitutional death sentence, or a state of exception. It's past time to abolish all states of exception. I thank you for your attention and your time. This is Mumia Abu Jamal. Next, a commentary about creating safe spaces for black LGBTQ plus youth from a parent caregiver perspective by Dr. Sakivu Hutchison, founder of the Women's Leader Project. You can find more information about this grassroots organization at womensleadershipla.org. A few months ago at a black parent meeting hosted by my child's high school, I encountered homophobic pushback from parents who objected to my recommendation that black queer affirming material be incorporated into the curriculum. A few folks implied that doing so would, quote, marginalize black straight students because, in their view, race slash racism are the most important issues confronting black children. The prevalence of this misguided, toxic narrative only underscores how critically important it is for black parents and caregivers to fight for black queer affirming youth spaces. This past winter, black and BIPOC queer students from South L.A., participated in a black LGBTQ plus retreat that focused on youth leadership, art making, yoga, music, and black queer social history. The event was co-sponsored by the Women's Leadership Project, the Black LGBTQI plus Parent and Caregiver Group, the GSA Network, Project Q, Reach LA, the Ahmad Institute, and Black Skeptics Los Angeles. It was a rare opportunity for black and BIPOC queer youth from elementary to high school to collaborate with each other and connect in a safe black focused environment with community mentors. The session was facilitated by Women's Leadership Project Youth and drew from the grassroots organizing work that students are doing at their schools to create safe spaces for queer students. 
For the past five years, WLP students have conducted Gay Lesbian Student Education Network Campus Climate Survey presentations at South LA high schools. The longitudinal data suggest that queer students of color are not getting the support that they need from administrators, teachers, and resource providers. Their work bears out the fact that many BIPOC queer youth say they experience intersectional homophobia, transphobia, anti-blackness, and other microaggressions on a regular basis in their schools, homes, and families. And although California has some of the most progressive LGBT educational policies due to the 2011 FAIR Act, which mandates the inclusion of LGBT contributions to American history in K-12 education. In fact, only 31% of the state's schools implemented LGBT inclusive curricula in 2019. Culturally responsive curricula that speak to the lived experiences, social capital, cultural knowledge, and community context of Black and BIPOC students of all genders is severely lacking. Implementation of BIPOC queer-affirming curricula, classroom management, and campus climate supports is virtually non-existent, aside from the representation of Gender and Sexuality Alliance, or GSA, youth leadership groups on campuses. At the youth session, students had the opportunity to read books by influential Black and BIPOC queer and feminist authors. One of the feature books was All Boys Aren't Blue, an acclaimed 2020 memoir by Black queer author George M. Johnson, which is one of the most banned texts in the U.S. In the book, Johnson discusses his coming of age as a queer young man in a supportive Black family. Of course, the everyday microaggressions queer youth experience simply reflect the national climate. Scores of anti-LGBTQ plus bills in the Midwest and the South are denying trans and non-binary kids gender-affirming care, discriminating against trans athletes, and generally terrorizing queer families. Right-wing, white Christian fascist extremist groups like Moms for Liberty are shutting down multicultural, anti-racist, and queer-affirming curricula in school districts across the nation, while, of course, the fascist governor of Florida, Ron DeSantis, leads the charge. These attacks have been buttressed by Congress's specifically, the Senate's, failure to pass the Equality Act. The Equality Act would provide federal civil rights protection for LGBT plus families, individuals, and communities by amending the 1964 Civil Rights Act to prevent discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. It would override anti-LGBT discrimination laws in over 20 states and ensure economic justice for generations of black LGBTQ plus youth who are more likely to be jobless, unhoused, and living below the poverty line. Ultimately, supporting movements and organizations that advance black and BIPOC queer youth and families is one of the best antidotes to hate and terrorism. It's important for black and BIPOC queer youth to see adults and community actively showing up to write, to publish, to testify, to organize, to amplify, and fight back against violent religious bigotry, white supremacy, misogynoir, trans antagonism, transphobia, homophobia, ableism, and sexism. This is Sakibu Hutchinson with the Women's Leadership Project reporting for Rebel Alliance News at KPFK. What it is, KPFK. I'm Angela Birdsong. And yeah, you know it. It's your Rebel Alliance News Community Calendar. Join the People's Assembly every first Thursday of the month to come together and be part of the solution to repair the damage from the pandemic and housing insecurities. June 1st, 6 to 7 p.m. at Community Coalition, 8101 Vermont Avenue in Los Angeles. Visit Coco South. LA.org for more info. Transmedia 360 and Let's Be Whole presents the Way You See Multimedia Arts Exhibit, Healing the Legacy of Slavery Through the Arts, featuring real slave artifacts, speakers, black art, poetry, cultural dance, music and drums, and much more during Juneteenth weekend, June 16th to the 18th at ArtShare LA, 801 East 4th Place in the Arts District in downtown Los Angeles. Opening reception is Friday, June 16th, starts at 6.30 p.m. with complimentary hors d'oeuvres and a ceremonial procession. 
Wayusi Arts Exhibit hours are Friday and Saturday, 7 to 10 p.m., and Sunday, 5, 2 to 5 p.m. Her Royal Highness Queen Nina Womack is the curator. Check out LegacyofSlavery.com for updates and on Eventbrite. Also, one of the opening night keynote speakers is Dr. Melina Abdullah, co-founder of Black Lives Matter Los Angeles, who can be heard here on KPFK, Monday, 7 a.m. on Move the Crowd. Remember to check out Range Projects Gallery Exhibit AWOL, absent from one's post without intent to desert, with artist Joan Roby, whose body of art reflects a 20-year journey in response to her mother's Alzheimer's disease. This mixed-media exhibit runs now until June 3rd on Saturdays and Sundays, 1 to 4 p.m. at Range Projects Gallery 3718 West Slauson Avenue in Los Angeles. The closing reception is Saturday, June 3rd, 6 to 9 p.m., featuring a musical performance, Memory of the Muse, with an original song written for Joan's mother, accompanied by two spoken word pieces at 7 p.m., along with a Q&A with Southern California Alzheimer's Association. Call 323-528-6839 for more details or email rangeonslawson at gmail.com. Julia Smith is the curator. Join Black Women for Wellness for the last week of their five-week mental health series, Exploring Foods and Moods, next Wednesday, June 7th, 6 to 8 p.m. on Zoom with chefs Carmen and Noel. Later that week, BWW presents Bring a Brother to Breakfast, Being a Man of the Village, Friday, June 9th, 9.30 a.m. to 12 p.m. at Crenshaw United Methodist Church. For information about Black Women for Wellness or to RSVP for these free events, go to bwwla.org. Health and Wellness Day with family activities, games and prizes, food at Curtis R. Tucker Center in Inglewood, Saturday, June 3rd, 1 to 3 p.m. This is a free event. Register at eventbrite.com. Margaret Love wants to see your face in the place as she performs and you dance at Roscoe's Jazz Lounge, 730 East Broadway in Long Beach, Saturday, June 10th, 8 p.m. to midnight. Call 562-437-8355 for details. Calling new shooters to reinforce your basic shooting concepts and intermediate shooters to test your fundamentals and push beyond basic applications with Stephanie for the next Shooter Cypher on Sunday, June 4th. Cypher days are reserved for shooters that have already taken the basic basics of pistol shooting with Stephanie and are not for inexperienced persons. For more information about Cypher Days or to take the basics of pistol shooting course, email shooterscypher at gmail.com. Receive on-site CalFresh application assistance by contacting the City of Bell Gardens Community Family Service Center Monday through Friday from 9 a.m. to 6 p.m. For more details, call 562-928-2000 or email bgcommunity at bellgardens.org. To find food pantries near you in the USA, go to foodfinder.com. U.S. To locate a Los Angeles Tenants Union meeting in your area online or over the phone, visit latennisunion.org. For mental health resources, crisis support, helplines, and warm lines, go to NAMI Urban LA under resources. NAMIUrbanLA.org under resources. I'm Angela Birdsong with More Than a Sparrow Productions. You've been listening to KPFK. Rebel Alliance News, where KPFK is a progressive media outlet challenging corporate media perspectives and providing a voice to the voiceless communities. Thank you for keeping KPFK strong and independent source of music, arts, news, and information. Our, we have a membership fund drive coming up starting next week, but you can become a member right now, a KPFK member. Go to kpfk.org. Or call 818-985-5735 and follow the prompts to donate. Thanks to our engineer, Wendell Handy, and all Rebel Alliance news contributors and our 
intern William Owens. And if you guys want to um, join us tomorrow again, join us at 6 p.m. We'll be back Thursday and Friday. Until then, let all that you do be done with love. Have a great evening, Los Angeles. And coming up next is Feminist Magazine. There's a lot to be thankful for. If you're thankful for the old family vehicle, you can let it help one more time by donating it to the KPFK Vehicle Donation Program. The proceeds will help KPFK continue the quality programming you depend on throughout the year. 